And if you brought a Bible with you, let me invite you to open it now to Hebrews chapter 11. Today I want to read verses 1 through 7. And today the sermon is going to take more of a flavor of an overview rather than a tight exposition of the first seven verses that will come next but today is going to be more of an overview of the entire chapter because what I'm going to say today you will see woven in and out of the entirety of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews so it's sort of, sort of an overture would be a good good way to speak of it today we're going to talk about what is faith and faith is sort of one of those abstract words that everybody kind of knows what you're talking about when you say it, but to actually define it with precision is sometimes challenging. But we hope that by the time we're done this morning, you will have um, a little better handle on faith because it's extremely important. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life, no doubt, is a life of faith. Faith is the issue on which the matter of salvation depends. It is the key that turns the lock on the door to eternal life. Faith is the channel by which we receive the benefits of Christ's saving work. It is the cup into which God pours his saving grace. And so the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews focuses our attention on the concept of faith but it does so in a way that is not so much 
a formal definition, a lexical de definition of faith, but more of a functional, developmental overview of the concept of faith. In other words, you can go look up in the Bible uh, Hebrew words for faith. Uh, Amenah in the Old Testament is a very common word for faith. In the New Testament, pistis is the Greek word most often used to describe faith. And in Latin, fide is the word used to describe faith. And then there are all kinds of derivatives from those basic terms, but that's not what we're talking about. Theologically, Martin Luther, Calvin, and others talked about faith using three Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia is knowledge. A census is coming to assent with or agreement with the knowledge you have that it's true. And fiducia is trust. But we're not going to talk about that today. What we are going to talk about is the way the writer of Hebrews understands this concept of faith. And he connects chapter 10 with chapter 11. If you'll look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we're going to spend, uh, kind of slow down our pace through the book of Hebrews as we go through chapter 11 and look carefully at a number of these illustrations of faith that are recorded here for our encouragement and for the encouragement of the original audience that received this book. And uh, I had an uncle who was known for taking vacations on the spur of a moment. Uh, he was never one who planned vacations. He would just say to his family, pack. Tomorrow morning, we're going on a two-week vacation. Well, where are we going? I don't know yet. Well, where are we going to stay? I don't know yet. What kind of clothes we need to bring? I don't know yet. And that was kind of exciting. But he was also known to get in his car and drive six, seven hundred miles without stopping. He would go by maybe a national site or historical site, they get out of the car, look at it, get back in the car and go. I would never want to go on a vacation with my uncle, and I never did. We're not going to do that with Hebrews 11. We're going to stop and smell the roses and look very carefully. So as you start thinking about faith, chapter 11 is sort of the locus classicus, the classic text, the main and best single spot in all of the Bible on the nature of faith. What is faith? What is it made of? How do you know if you have it? How do you lose it? How do you get it back? How does it grow? How does it wane? All of these things are dealt with not only in some general statements, which we're going to look at now, but best of all through specific personal case studies. Dozens of them. Men and women and how they developed and how they wrestled with the issues that have to do with faith. We're going to see faith with skin on. And we're going to see it in people's lives and how it sustained them to walk with the Lord. Now, right away, uh, you might be asking yourself, well, why do I need to know about this? Faith is interesting. It's kind of abstract. Maybe somebody says, well, I have faith. I guess I've always had faith. What's so important and what's so practical about it? And again, let me remind you, everything in the Christian life that you need 
Everything in the Christian life given to you is received by faith. Faith is everything in the Christian life. It is the essence of beginning the Christian life. It is the essence of continuing the Christian life. It is the essence of a relationship with God. And so it's a very practical thing for us to spend time with faith. Uh, when we are saved, when the Holy Spirit of God regenerates us and gives us the gift of faith, then we become connected. We have an organic connection, just like the vine and the branch connected to the vine by faith is the channel through which God conveys to us, gives to us the conduit through which everything we have comes. And so it's important to sit up and pay attention today. Because this is key. This is significant. Now, when we look at faith in the most pragmatic way, we have to say it would be great to have something that can enable us to face whatever we consider to be ultimate. If you have a faith, a faith that can face the ultimate, you have real faith. But what is it? It's a tremendously practical issue. So today... I'm going to give you an overview of chapter 11 and what is to come through the rest of this chapter because faith, in we, as we read in this chapter, has three parts to it, three aspects to it. It has three layers, as it were, like a three-layer cake. Think of it that way. And except you can't really just look at it that way because some of it is intertwined. So it's a very difficult way to grasp it but three layers will help and I would suggest to you it's easy to understand these three parts of faith as three layers one of which comes first and then the others rest upon it now reality is often more complex than illustrations there is a sense in which each of these three things I'm about to mention to you are a real part of faith but they're actually aspects in other words, if you look at any one of these aspects, the other two are always there. The other two are contained in the one. And if you look at any one of them, the other two are there, and yet all three are absolutely critical if we understand faith. I hope I've confused you enough. Now, faith begins, listen carefully, faith begins with understanding. That's layer number one. Understanding leads to conviction. That's layer number two but completes itself always in commitment. That's label number three. It begins with understanding, it leads to conviction, but always completes itself in commitment. Think of those three terms, understanding, conviction, commitment. Let me show you how that works. And I don't have to give you exotic illustrations. The process of faith development, that is one of these things layered on the next, layered on the next, is absolutely essential and necessary for life. There is essentially no demonstrable proof of anything in this world except mathematical equations. They're pretty indisputable proof, but that's as deep as I'm gonna go with the math. Therefore, everything we do, everything we know, Everything we learn, actually, as I hope to show you, is a result of a faith development process. I'm not saying you can't know everything. 
I'm just saying that nothing except for mathematical equations can you know without a faith development process. Now, somebody might want to challenge me about that, and I'm willing to learn. But don't challenge me too far because that's above my pay grade. Faith development is the way in which we do anything. Let me show how it works. Let's say you need a surgeon. You're sick. You need surgery. You know you got to have surgery. How do you find a surgeon? Or let's say uh, you're going to get married. You're looking for a spouse. You're looking for a man or a woman to marry. How do you do that? How do you find an auto mechanic for your car? How do you hire a new key member to your team? How do you do these things? They're all the same. Essentially, they're all the same. Here's what happens. Say you know you're going to have to have surgery. You're going to find a doctor. First of all, there's a rational process. You get recommendations from people you trust. You get opinions. You get references. You sift through the evidence. You talk to people. You sort out competing claims, and you decide which is the best doctor for me in this situation. In other words, it's a very rational process. It involves reasoning and thinking. You just don't leap and jump to a collusion and find some guy in a lab coat and say, cut me open. You don't do that. Secondly, if you truly come to understanding, there's a point in which you have to make a decision. If you go through the process that this is the right doctor, at a certain point you have to decide. You have to say, this is the right doctor for me. There has to be a decision. What we like about mathematics and what we hate about faith development is at this point in the process, you reasoned, you've taken all the references, you've thought it out, you've analyzed it, you have lots and lots of evidence that this is the doctor, this is the best person, this is the one to go to and make your decision. You can only do that on the basis of probability. You cannot know for sure yet, so it's probability. Absolute certainty eludes you. One writer who I really like a lot, Trevor Hart, argues that absolute certainty is idolatry. I'm not sure, but close. Faith hasn't completed itself until you move through that decision into commitment. What do I mean by that? You make yourself vulnerable. You lay yourself out on the table. That's commitment. You let them put that thing over your mouth. You know that you are utterly and completely vulnerable. You start counting down from 10. The next conscious thought you have, hopefully, is you wake up in the recovery room. But you made a decision on the basis of reason, but it was just probability. You couldn't know for sure until you made yourself vulnerable to that person. After you've done that and you've rested in that decision and you've lived out of that decision and you've actually put yourself into the hands of a surgeon or a mechanic or your fiancé and actually marry, only after you've done that can you ever be certain if the person is trustworthy. Then as time goes on, certainty grows. That's how it works. You understand, you reason to probability, then you decide and commit to certainty, and faith only completes itself in certainty. So are you with me? Are you following me? You see what's happening? 
You reason, but you can never know anything simply through reason. You reason, and then you have to commit, and you have to live out of it, and you have to rest in it. You have to stick to it. You have to follow through. You have to come to certainty. And that's how people make decisions, wise decisions. This is the way in which you find things. People would like it not to have to be. People would like to think that simple reasoning can get you certainty, but it is the nature of the case. Ontologically speaking, it won't work. The reason why some people never get married is because they want to reason to certainty and then make the commitment. They want to be absolutely sure. This is a reason I'm sure some of you maybe in this room aren't married. They want to reason to certainty. They don't want to reason to probability and then commit to certainty. They don't want to admit there's no way to know anything except through faith and that faith has these three aspects, understanding, conviction, and finally commitment. Now as I said, I'm going to move on and explain the details of the parts, but for a minute, let me stop and make my first practical application point. And the first practical application point is this. Do not try to get out from under your responsibility to believe in God and in Jesus Christ by thinking of faith as some kind of talent or gift that you don't have. Let me say that again. Don't you dare get out from under your responsibility to believe in God and Jesus Christ by thinking of faith as a kind of talent, a kind of gift, a kind of bolt of lightning. That's not how faith development works. And you can't get around in life without faith development. As a matter of fact, you're using faith all the time. You are putting your faith in things all the time. You cannot live without doing this. Everything from the little things like a mechanic for your car and the big things on deciding about a career or how you decide on a spouse to very big things on how you decide ethics, what's right and wrong, how to decide whether life has any meaning and what you're going to live for. All of those things are faith processes. Now it's easy and very typical for people to say to people like me, oh, you have faith? How nice. That's so nice for you. But that's just not me. You know, when, when you look at me, I'm just not that kind of person. In other words, you can look at people with faith in Christ. You can look at them the way an unmusical person looks at a great musician or an unathletic person looks at a great athlete. You say, you know, I wish I could hit a ball like Tiger Woods, but I can't. That's just not me. Or it'd be nice if I could sing like that, but that's just not me. It'd be nice if I could have faith in Jesus Christ, but that's not me. A hot young writer by the name of Douglas Copeland wrote a book called Life After God. And he said in this book that he listens to radio programs in which he hears people talking about how Jesus has changed their life. And he says, you know, it sounds like it'd be nice, However, here's the way I relate to it. It is as if somebody came from another planet to Earth, a planet in which nobody ever had sex. And I would sit down and try to explain to them the joys of sex and even show them pictures. They would look at it and say, you know, I can't relate to it. I guess it's great for you, but not for me. I'm a Martian. We don't have sex. See you later. It's as simple as that. 
And what Copeland is saying here is very typical. People say you have faith. It seems like your life is changed by Jesus. Isn't that nice for you? I wish I could hit a ball like that. I wish I could sing like that, but that's just not me. This is utterly mistaken and utterly wrong. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian is not that Christians have and use faith and non-Christians don't. Everybody has and uses faith. Everybody. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not whether you have faith, but where you put the faith you have. Where you're build, building your life. What you're building your life upon. The Bible does not call to skeptics and say, oh, you hard-nosed skeptical people who don't live with faith, but only on the basis of reasoning. Ah, oh, yeah, take the leap. Just make this great leap of faith and believe in Jesus, and it will work for you too. No. That's not what the Bible says. What it says is that there is an instability and unhappiness in your life. And do you know why? It's because you've already put your faith in inadequate objects. You know what a bomb is? A bomb is something with an unstable compound in the center. And that's why it blows up. Do you want to know why you're unanxious and unhappy and miserable and unstable? Something inside you which is unstable. Do you know what that unstable compound is? How you decide where you get your meaning in life, how you decide what are the most important things to live for are, how you decide what is right and wrong. You've already put your faith because you can't prove these things on things which are inadequate. It's like putting a pyramid upside down. It's very unstable. For you to try to build greatness in your life on the things you're already believing in creates that instability. It's a bomb. And if you haven't already gone off eventually, you will. So the Bible doesn't say, oh, you poor people without faith, believe, take a leap, just do it. Take the flying leap and believe in Jesus. It says the following, don't you dare, don't you dare get out from under your responsibility to believe. Saying you don't believe, you do. It's where you believe. It's what you're believing in, and that is the point. Now let me give you an introduction not of how these three things interrelate, but of how in terms of faith in Christ, what each one of these things really is. And it's just an introduction because the beauty of the series and the beauty of expounding an entire book of the Bible is we're going back to each of these aspects, three of them, several times in the next few weeks. This will be brief. It's already been a little long, but it'll be brief. And We'll come back and talk about it more and more. First of all, faith is understanding. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the world was made by the unseen God. By faith, we understand the visible things, that is nature. The physical things were brought into existence by the unphysical, by the immaterial, by the supernatural, by God himself. Do you know what the word understand means? It's a simple Greek word, noieo in the Greek. It has to do with the mind. It has to do with thinking. It has to do with reasoning. When it says understand, it means by faith we conclude from the evidence. 
That's what it says. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. A couple of years ago, I was reading a book on the philosophy of science. And there was a tremendously interesting chapter in which it said scientific theories are not established strictly by induction. Rather, it says, when a scientist notices, for example, particles react in a certain way, what the scientists do is to figure out why, and then they posit a theory. In other words, they start with a premise. They say, let's start assuming this is the case. Does that explain the phenomenon? Let's test out our theory. In other words, they start with what? Faith. In other words, what this essay was saying is that how scientists understand anything is they start with faith. They take a theory, they take a premise, something that hasn't been proven. That's the idea. And they say, does this account for what we see, what we observe? Does this make it coherent? Does it fit together? Does this lead us to expect what is actually happening? In other words, by faith is the way we understand anything at all, especially scientifically. You start with a premise. You start with a faith presupposition. And then you say, does this help us understand? Then you test it out, the theory that best explains what out there becomes the reigning theory. How we decide where the universe came from, where life came from, it's done the same way. Everybody who has ever addressed that question, where did life come from? How did organic life happen? How did the universe happen? Starts with a premise that is unprovable. That is not certain. The premise is not something you can prove to start with. You either say, well, let's start with a premise that there's no supernatural. Let's say that's my premise. You can't prove that. Nobody can prove that. That's an assumption. Now, if you start with that premise and say, does that make sense in the universe? Is this a way to justify the theory that's a way to understand the universe and the way the average secular intellectual looks at it and probably most of the people in our country. But here's what a Christian is, and this is what the text is telling us. Christians are people who decide that from the premise of no God, the universe is, un understandable, is not understandable. It's not coherent. It doesn't account for what's there. The only rational and reasonable way to account for what we see is starting with a faith premise that there is a self-existent God who exists by his own being and power, who created it, we'll find out later, out of nothing. That's our premise. Now we're going to look at that in a little more detail next week by faith we understand but here are the hard-nosed people who look at the universe without faith, and here are Christians who look at the universe with faith. In spite of the evidence, I believe God created everything. That's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. If you say you have faith, and what you mean by that is because my parents raised me this way, I believe God created the universe in spite of all the facts of evidence to the contrary, that's not faith at all. That's not faith. That's brainwashing. That's obscurantism. That's anti-intellectual. It's not faith. If you say you have faith, what you mean by that is a Christian is somebody who looks at the universe and thinks like this.
A Christian looks and says, okay, if there's no God, then there's less mathematical chance of organic life just springing out of inorganic life than there is a chance that an explosion in a print factory would produce the Gutenberg Bible. Now, that's true. So Christians look at the world and say, does that premise that there is no God who has the power of being within himself really make sense of what I see? And the Christian says, no, not at all. Or another way a, a Christian says, if there is no God, then that means everything's an accident. Even though all human beings universally believe, for example, that genocide is morally wrong, there's no basis for that. It's not true. Though all human beings deeply believe there's a difference between violence and compassion, that's not true. It's all random. It's all chemicals. It's all molecules bumping into each other. Does that make sense? A Christian says, if there is no God, does that promise make sense of what we know and what we see? A Christian is somebody, is not somebody, a Christian is not somebody who says, I believe against the evidence. The Christian is one who says, unless I believe in God, what I see out there makes no sense at all. There's reasoning, there's rationality, and that's how faith begins. Let me make my second practical point before we move on. This means when the Bible calls you to believe, it calls you to start thinking, in many cases, and let me say this respectfully, for the first time. Most people do not disbelieve out of thinking. They disbelieve because it's not radical, it's not relevant, it's not cool, it's not hip, it's not in, and that is all emotion. I put it to you this way. Christians are people who usually, in many cases, become Christians because for the first time in their life, they've been forced to think. I can remember, you know, Plato's theory of the cave. I can remember when I became a Christian, it was like I walked out of the cave. That didn't happen. (laughs) But I walked out of the cave And for the first time, the lights came on, and all of a sudden, I started seeing things and thinking to myself, this has been here all the time, but I never saw it. This has been here all, this has been, and it just stunned me. I was in awe of the fact. But it it, it wasn't um, an emotional thing as much as it was, I began to think. I mean, really think for the first time. I mean, I always made good grades. I could spit back to you what you gave to me. I could memorize really well. I have a pretty good memory. I, I, I can learn both through audio and visual and uh, kinetically and every other way. I know how to do that. But thinking? I didn't know how to do that. It is anti-intellectual to say what I often hear people say, maybe somebody is thinking this out there right now. You say, you know, pastor, I'm in pain. I have a hard life. I came to church today hoping I would get something practical to know how to deal with this hard life I have, uh, how to make these hard choices, uh, how to deal with this awful relationship. I need some strength. I need some inspiration. I need something practical, not arguments for the existence of God. But here's what Christianity says to you, my friend. Okay, you're in pain, but let me ask you a question. 
How in the world do you think you're going to make a decision about how to make these decisions in life unless you first decide whether you're an accident or whether you are the creation of a designer personal God? Don't you see? If you're an accident and it all happened by accident, or if God created you, it utterly affects everything else you do. You cannot make a single move without presuming one or the other. Nobody can do anything without a starting place, one place or the other. It is ridiculous to say, I don't know whether I'm an accident or whether I was designed with purpose. To decide to sleep with this guy or not sleep with this guy. Whether to go to college and have a career or not. How to deal with my depression. I want something practical. I don't want to have to think about things like that. But Christianity says you have to think. Or you're not going to be able to make intelligent decisions about daily choices. Christianity is not for lazy minds. It's just not. Faith is not a matter for lazy minds. It's not saying, oh, I'm the person who doesn't want to think, so I just want to believe. Christianity says for the first time in your life, start thinking. Maybe Christianity is not escapism. Everything else is escapism that says, I can make a decision about these values, and I don't have to figure out whether there's a God or not, whether or not the universe makes sense without God. I don't want to think of the implications of my decision, which many people have made, that there is no God, or we can't know if there's a God, and therefore the universe should be seen as an accident. If you came from nothing and you're headed for nothing, and everything is accidental, then have the guts to say your life means nothing. Which is exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes' conclusion he came to. Vanity. All is vanity. Stop acting on impulses. The scripture tells us to gird up the loins of our minds. Get your mind together. Get your head on straight. Get your thoughts together. Don't be an animal. Don't go on instincts. Don't just do it because it feels good. Don't be a machine. Secondly, faith is not only understanding, but it's conviction. Now here's what that means. You notice in verse 1, there's a fascinating little phrase, and it's always translated differently. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Certain of what we do not see, or the conviction of things we do not see. Now, this is one of the places where the exact Greek word is pretty important to understanding its meaning. It literally says the conviction of the pragmaton. Past events, living by faith means I am convicted personally to live in line with past events that are no longer in front of me. But things I know affect me. That's what it means. In other words, this means a Christian is a person who's moved beyond saying, I believe there's a God. I know the evidence is there. I realize life doesn't make sense on naturalistic, non-supernaturalist assumptions. In other words, a Christian is not somebody who simply believes intellectually in God in Christ, that he died, that he was raised. A Christian is somebody who says, if that's true, it changes the way I am. It changes the way I live. You have not come to faith if you simply intellectually assent to things. But at some point, you have to say, wait a minute. 
If this is true, if Jesus really did these things, if he did die on the cross for me, if he was the Son of God born as a human being in the incarnation, if the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, if all of these things are true, then you get personally convicted. That changes the way I am now. That's what it says. And so the life of faith is living in the light of being controlled by what Jesus did, by those great events that the gospel proclaims. The Son of God, born as a human being, died on the cross for our sins, raised on the third day. In other words, a Christian is somebody who says, if he is a king, I can't live like I'm a king. I, I'm, I'm going to stop it. A Christian, as somebody said, if he died for my sins, why am I so crushed under guilt? On the other hand, if he died for my sins, I don't have to be crushed with self-loathing and self-hatred and guilt. On the other hand, if he died for my sins, how in the world can I live in this kind of behavior since he died to get me out of it? See, a Christian is somebody who draws a line from what happened, that which we do not see right in front of us. Instead of going on appearances, instead of simply living in the present, a Christian is somebody who is controlled by what happened. Paul gives a great example of this, and it's a classic illustration, but I want to show you that the life of faith is not at all a matter of brainwashing. It's not closing your eyes and just acting in certain ways. It is a deeply rational process, but it goes beyond reason. Faith is not less than reason. Faith is not less than thinking, but it's so much more. Paul tells a story about something that happened in his letter to Galatians. He tells us he had an argument with Peter. Peter and Paul arguing. That's two pretty big league people. Peter and Paul were both Jews. Jews had traditionally been taught Gentiles could not be pleasing to God because of their practices, the way they ate, the way they handled their life, the way they did things, and because of their lack of pedigree, uh, they weren't the right kind of people, and because of their pedigree, and because of their practices, they weren't clean and they weren't pleasing to God. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, we know God showed Peter something remarkable. He had what I call the sheet vision. Peter believed in Jesus Christ and God by converting and bringing to Jesus Christ Cornelius the centurion and his family, a group of Gentiles. Right before Peter's eyes showed Peter, we do not become pleasing to God either by our pedigree or our practice, but through faith in Christ. Because when we believe, we're united to Christ. If you're falling off a cliff, and you see a branch sticking out of the cliff, how much faith do you need in the branch to save you? Do you need complete certainty? Well, you might say, I'm not even worried. Yeah, I know it's 70 stories down there, but there's this branch, no sweat. I'm not even sweating. Yeah, look at that. I'm three feet, now falling down, but I can still reach that branch. Is that the kind of faith you need for it to save you? No. You need just enough faith to grab it. If it holds you, you will know it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the truth of your faith that saved you. It was the strength of the branch. When you grabbed it, your faith united to its strength. Jesus' pedigree is perfect. He's the Son of God. He comes from a good family. Jesus' practice was perfect. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay for our sins. When you unite with him by faith, not perfect faith, not strong faith, but 
faith and truth, his pedigree becomes yours. You're as acceptable as if you were from that wonderful family. You're in the family. His practice, his life, his death, everything he paid for becomes yours. Now, when Peter realized that, he began to eat with these Gentiles. He realized that people are not saved by their pedigree or their practice. They're saved by their faith when that faith unites them to Jesus. But old prejudices die hard. And some people came to Peter and said, how in the world could you be eating with those unclean Gentile dogs? Yeah, they're Christians, but they're Gentiles. They're second class. So he stopped eating with them. And Paul got up in his grill, up in his face, and faced down Sam and Peter because his behavior was not in line with the gospel. Do you know what it means to live by faith? It means you're continually looking at what Jesus did. And you're saved sheerly by grace. And you're saved sheerly by what he did. His life, his death, and all that. Then what you're constantly looking at is you're looking at yourself and saying, are my feelings in line with the gospel? Is my behavior in line with the gospel? Is my thinking in line with it? Look, I'm depressed. Is that in line with the gospel? I feel guilty. I feel terrible. Is that in line with the gospel? I'm proud. I look down my nose at other people. Is that in line with the gospel? That's the life of faith. That means Christianity is not a bunch of rules. Does the Bible condemn racism as a sin? Yeah, but why? Is it just because it's an abstract violation of a rule? No, racism is a sin because it's not in line with the gospel. And you're never going to fix it apart from the gospel. Gospel is the only thing that can throw a death blow to that. We're all sinners saved by grace. Pedigree doesn't mean anything. We all should be lost, but we're all saved. Those of us who believe, pedigree or practice means nothing. There's a doctrine you've heard that the Bible teaches, I believe, that you can't lose your salvation. Why? Just because the Bible teaches us? Yes, because to believe you can lose your salvation once you have your salvation, that belief is not in line with the gospel. If you didn't earn it, how can you unearn it? If you didn't earn it by being good, how can you unearn it by being bad? Everything, everything, the life of faith is not a matter of, here's a bunch of abstract doctrines I have to believe in spite of the evidence. Here's a bunch of abstract rules I have to stick with in spite of the evidence. No. Once you see this is coherent, then you say, because of what Jesus did, I'm certain of the things you see. I'm convicted by those things which happened. I live my life out of it. Okay, lastly... And we'll probably talk about this one the most as we continue. Faith is not merely understanding conviction, but it's also commitment. You have to live out in it. Just to say this, you cannot know the certainty of anything without commitment. I know we hate that word. Especially postmodern people want to be certain before we commit. But you can only be certain after you commit. I want you to realize you can't avoid commitment. 
If you don't believe in God, if you're living your life as if there's no God, if you're living your life as if there's no judgment day, if you're living your life as if God is not going to judge you for what you've done, if you are going to live your life as if Jesus Christ did not die for you, if you're living your life like that, that itself is a commitment. You're betting your life on the fact that he is not a judge. You're betting your life that there's no Christ. You're betting your life that there's no God. You don't know that. You're waging your entire life and your entire destiny on a faith premise. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's the only way to live, but I want you to know what you're doing. Christians are people who have thought things out. We haven't picked up our religion by going to religion one-on-one at school and seeing everybody ridicule orthodox religion saying, boy, I don't want to be stupid. That's not thinking, that's emotion. Christians are people who have thought out what it means to believe. They realize if Jesus did the things he did, a Christian is convicted that I'm going to live in line with that. The more you live out of that, the more you commit to that, the more you rest in that, the more certainty you will find he is who he said he is. Are you ready to do that? See, that's where some of you are right now. I mean, you'll give agreement and assent to the basic facts of the gospel message, but what's lacking in your faith is that commitment. That commitment. And the reason why you have no certainty, you have no confidence, you have no boldness in your Christian life is you're just sort of hanging on the sidelines. You're not really in the game. The more you live out of that and the more you commit to that and the more you rest in that, the more certain you will find Jesus is who he said he is. Are you ready to do that? Can you do that? Christian friends, live the life of faith. None of us do it like we want to, but ask yourself, is what I'm doing in line with the gospel? I can remember when uh, I preached my older brother's funeral. Uh, He died at 42, and so I grew up in a small town in the south. And so I go to the funeral home, and I get up to preach, And there on the front row are all the scallywags and radicals and burnout hippies and uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells and no accounts sitting on the first three rows. That is the friends of my brother. And I thought to myself of how I would have preached to them 20 years earlier before I understood the gospel with any depth. But I remember after I delivered my brother's sermon... And I basically told them, my brother was converted by the grace of God. I said, he's no different than you. I'm no different than you. Nobody's any different than you. It's just that God opened our eyes to see the beauty of the truth. And I'll never forget, guy after guy that had any backbone walked up to me after that funeral and said, there's something about you. You know, I used to ask your brother all the time, is Tim still a a Christian? Is he still a preacher? Is he still doing all that wild stuff? I thought he would have phased out by now. But they all looked at me and they said, almost to a man, you have such confidence and certainty and authority 
in what you're saying and preaching. I can't deny that. I, I guess it works for you. I said it works for anybody who believes. It works for anybody who believes. But I will tell you this. The more you grow in your understanding, the more you develop conviction, and the more you commit yourself, the greater your certainty of these truths will be. You learn how to feed your faith. You learn how to nourish your faith. You learn how to build up your faith by, and there's no other way around it, by commitment. Giving him everything without reservation. So, those of you who are my friends who don't know whether you're a Christian or not or maybe you thought you were a Christian before you came and now you're wondering don't stop thinking don't stop exploring digging until you come to a place where you can say I am certain of the things I don't see I know these things to be true let's pray Father, we ask that it would be possible that everybody in this room might now or at some time come to see what it means to say, I don't believe like I should. Help my unbelief. Father, by admitting we don't believe, we take the first step toward real belief, toward genuine, real faith. I pray that all of us would take more steps today and in the next few minutes, in the next couple of hours, that everybody in this room will bring their lives more in line with these truths and will find that they're growing in faith and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people whose faith is developing more as we hear and understand your word and understand who you are and what you've done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.